Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. At some point in our life, we all go through difficult times. We experience pain, disappointment, and loss. And these experiences can often have a profound impact on us, for better or for worse. But according to my guest today, Stephen Cope, crisis does not have to derail us. In fact, it can be the very thing that can direct us to our purpose and help us step forward as our best selves. This is a central theme of his new book, Tarma in Difficult Times. Stephen Cope is a psychotherapist, Kripalu yoga teacher, scholar, and best-selling author of several books on yoga and meditation. He is the founder of the Kripalu Institute of Extraordinary Living in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, the largest center for the study and practice of yoga in the Western world. The magazine Yoga Journal named him one of the most influential thinkers, writers, and teachers on the current American yoga scene. In this episode, Stephen will offer his insight into how we can identify our purpose as we find our way through our darker times. He'll explain what it means to find our dharma using examples from his own life and the lives and teachings of famous figures from history. And if you like what you heard, Please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Stephen. How are you today? Hi, Celine. I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing terrific. I am so glad that we have this opportunity to connect today to talk about your new book, Dharma in Difficult Times. Uh, Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that you're here. And I just finished reading the book and it is such a compelling read and it conveys such a powerful message that I think is really important and relevant to our times today. So I just want to say that from the get-go. Yeah, I'm so glad. Thank you. The book's just out for a couple of weeks, so I'm kind of in that early phases of how is this landing? So thank you. That really means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. I I absolutely loved it. Um, And we'll get into the details uh, you know, about the book later. But for now, let's talk about your personal journey. Uh, Tell us about the events and occurrences um, that led to you discovering your own dharma. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, just for your viewers, in in case they're not familiar with the word dharma, dharma is, is a Sanskrit word that it's one of those complex Sanskrit words that has a lot of kind of overlapping meanings. So very often in Buddhist circles or in yogic circles, you'll hear it meaning law, truth, path. But in the Bhagavad Gita, the scripture that I'm writing about, it always means sacred calling. 
true calling or true vocation or vocation of the soul. So that's what Dharma is in the, in the context of the conversation you and I are going to have. And um, as far as discovering my own Dharma, you know, I, I, I think, Celine, by and large, most people of, of my age, when we look back at our lives and, and look at the trajectory of our dharmas, notice that it's very, the, the discovery of our dharma is very incremental. It's very step by step. So I, I saw that you were going to ask me that question and I, I pondered it a little bit. And I thought, wow, this whole journey for me started back in graduate school when I, I, just happened upon this meditation center that was near my home. <clears throat> and every evening as I was coming back from graduate school, I would notice there was a group of 30 or 40 people sitting, just sitting, clearly meditating in front of this big glass window at this house that I walked past. And I'd never meditated. So I walked in one evening and I said, um, what, what are you guys doing? And and can I join? So he said, yeah, sit down. He gave me a little instruction. And I was 30 years old at that point and had been trained in psychoanalytic psychology and all kinds of things, but had never meditated. And I found myself so instantly drawn to the Dharma. And, and now in the word, the Dharma, I'm using the, the path and the teachings uh, as soon as I was exposed to the genius of Buddhism and yoga and the Eastern contemplative traditions, I just felt completely lit up. So that was the, the first step. And at that point, I was a psychotherapist with a thriving practice in Boston. And then a situation came along where I was able to take a year-long sabbatical. So I thought, I'm going to go to this brilliant meditation center called Kripalu, the largest meditation yoga center in America. So I took my sabbatical there. And then while I was there, I, I realized that I wanted to start writing about the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western psychology. So as I look back, there were just these, these steps and a lot of doors that were opening, doors that, and the process of coming to grips with and, and recognizing your dharma is, it's a little bit of a mystical path. You, you encounter open doors as I did, like when I put out the proposal for my first book, I got this brilliant uh, editor at, at Bantam Books. And so at every step along the way, I made little sequential steps that led to my really fully embracing my dharma finally as a writer. And the book that we're talking about is, is my sixth book. And... I would say if I have to characterize my dharma, it's writing about the the genius of the Eastern contemplative traditions and the relationship to, to the Western mind and Western psychology. Um, and in my first book on dharma, which is called The Great Work of Your Life, I, I wrote about uh, 11 different great figures. And, and I noticed when I was done with the book that each one of them had had this very gentle, subtle, incremental trajectory toward the full embrace of their dharma in this mm -hmm. lifetime. And that's certainly what happened to me. Wow, that's a great story. And I want to ask you, Stephen, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned that 
several doors opened for you along the way and you kind of had to step mm-hmm. into it. How did you know that they were significant and that you had to take action? That's such a great point. You know, here's what happens, Celine, is that you uh, you begin to learn to recognize them. So the very first point on the on that trajectory that I gave you was actually quite a, I would say, a dramatic recognition. I was sitting in meditation in my in my home. This was after I'd learned to meditate one afternoon, and I really got the the classic kind of voice from inside that said, "Steve, you have to take a year off. You have to take a year off." And I listened to it, it was dramatic and. Um, not only do you have to take a year off, but you have to go and, and practice meditation in depth at, at some kind of monastic place. And at the time, I was in psychoanalysis as part of my training. So I checked that out with my analyst, with all my friends, with my family. It took me two years to respond to that um, that knowing, if you will, that recognition, because I had to I had to leave a very complicated life uh, uh, in which I had many psychotherapy patients, long-term patients, took a while to, um, to terminate with them. And then finally, two years later, I was able to leave Boston, go to Kripalu, where, I, where I've spent the last 32 years. So that was a big one. But in answer to your question, you, you begin to, and, and meditation and contemplative practice it all allows you to, to hone your sense of discernment, so your sense of, of being able to recognize messages that are from deep inside, messages that, as I say in the book, are from kind of awake mind or illumined mind or that, that sense of awakeness that we have lying underneath the ordinary craziness of discursive mind. You learn to recognize it and pay attention to it. And partly it's through the act of, you said something smart. You said, how did you realize you had to act on it? <clears throat> well, acting on it is essential, right? When you when yeah. you get these messages, the more you act on it, the more support you get from the universe, if you yes. will. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, I've noticed that too. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you, I mean, you may look, you may think, oh my God, am I going to jump off this cliff? Yeah. Am I going to leave my therapy practice? And then in retrospect, you realize it wasn't a cliff at all. It was just like a little curb. Yeah. Um, but And you couldn't more, see what's ahead, right? You couldn't see what's ahead. Yeah. But I will tell you this, the more practice you have at doing those little steps, the more you get to the big cumulative um, uh, kind of fruitful fruition of, of Dharma. It's a great yeah. question. But same thing. <clears throat> acting on them is so important. This is where I love Henry David Thoreau, whom I profile in, in my new book. Yes. Because he was all about action and he was about discerning that still small voice within and then acting on it. Yeah. Yeah. You say in your book that we often find our dharma during difficult times. And I just wanted to uh, move, move into that, uh, into that topic. Is it always the case that we find our dharma during difficult times or can it just be a, stro- a stroke of, you know, like an intuitive feeling that you get? 
as we just it can talked definitely about. be it can definitely yeah. be the latter Celine. so yeah <clears throat> i like to say there there are three different very fruitful hunting grounds for dharma the first one which doesn't require difficult times is is the answer to the question what's lighting you up okay so what what is it that's lighting up your soul and i very often have my students just make a list of what it is that's lighting them up and and on that list will be a bunch of mundane things but there'll be several really important things that are that are and and, and this is the best way I found to say it that are lighting them up. Um, so that doesn't require difficult times. It does require discernment. The second very fruitful hunting ground for Dharma that I found is, is what I call duty. So the question there is, what is, what is the duty that you feel deeply inside that if you do not accomplish it or attempt to accomplish it in your lifetime, you'll feel a profound sense of self-betrayal. So, and, <clears throat> and what if your characters um, really exhibited that that lesson, that that feeling That's that right. he had? I, I don't remember who it was. It was Charles <laughs> Russell Lowell. That is right. Yeah. Lowell. Yeah. Right. So the question is. So then duty becomes reframed from something that gets imposed on us from without mm -hmm. to some deeply felt ardent um, longing to, uh, you know, to, to engage in some endeavor. So the first uh, happy hunting ground, as it were, is, is really what's lighting you up. And then duty is different than that. And duty may have more rough edges. And then the third one is what difficulties are arising in your life because very often difficulties um, have at their core these amazing opportunities and possibilities as as they did with this particular um, uh, character that you're talking about mm -hmm. so <clears throat> difficulties force us sometimes to recognize a dharma that's there that we've not been aware of so they Difficult times force us to step up and they force us to gather together everything we have inside in order to meet the difficulty. In yoga, this is called unified action. The doctrine of unified action is one of the central doctrines of the Bhagavad Gita. And that's the idea that we unify everything we have, all of our actions around our calling, around our sacred duty. And of course, this is what Charles Russell Lowell did in, in the book. Uh, I also wrote about um, Harriet Beecher Stowe in this book, who, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe had long had a, a sense that she wanted to be a writer. And of course, she was the daughter of a clergyman and the wife of a clergyman, and she didn't have an opportunity. But it was when her two-year-old son, Charlie, died that... Um, her life changed and she felt this um, in, in the midst of the difficulty of the death, she felt this connection with other people, in this case, specifically enslaved black women who were losing their children, their infants, uh, not necessarily through death, but on the auction block. She felt this welling up of a calling to write about this. And she wrote her brilliant book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then the, a sequence of books after that, which are very powerful, but that may never have happened had she not been forced 
by difficult times to call forth that that gift. So you see what I mean about unified action? She brought yes. it all together. Yeah. She brought it all together. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I just want to say that I I enjoyed reading the stories of all these mm. all these luminaries that you featured in the book because I didn't know many of them. Um, yeah, sure. I did know Henry David Thoreau. I knew Gandhi. Um, but the others, not so much. I guess it's because I don't know too much about American history, but it was um, fascinating to read. And uh, I'm just curious, Stephen, what made you choose these characters specifically to carry the message of your book? Why did they stand out to you? Well, I always use characters that I have some deep relationship with in my life. So, um, and, and in each chapter, I try to give at least a little uh, window into what that personal connection is for me. Yeah. And at the same time, I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I begin the book by talking about what psychologists now call the disorienting dilemma. So a disorienting dilemma is a dilemma that we face in life that cannot be solved by us without reimagining our whole understanding of the world and how the world works. There are dilemmas of such gravity that they force us to move to a higher state of consciousness, if you will. So I wanted to track disorienting dilemmas all the way from 1830 with Henry David Thoreau in, in Concord, Massachusetts, to the present time with Ruby Sales. But I wanted each one of these characters to be facing a dilemma that had to do with America's most important dilemma, which is the dilemma that our constitution says that all men are created equal, and yet we um, slavery was uh, allowed within the context of that um, constitution and all the early documents to talk about freedom. So this is a this is what I call a dilemma etched in rock. This is a dilemma that the United States has had to deal with, and I wanted to trace the way in which the Bhagavad Gita has influenced our thinking about this dilemma all the way from Thoreau to um, Ruby Sales, who's still alive and very active in, in civil rights right now. So each character is actually dealing with a different facet of the dilemma of racism, xenophobia, slavery, and so forth. So that's, so that's why I picked these particular characters. Right. And you opened the book with Gandhi. So what made you choose Gandhi? So Gandhi is, as, as we know, the most important student of the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. Gandhi said, if you want to see what a life looks like that's, that's ordered around the teachings of the Gita, look at my life. And Gandhi is the single thread that goes through all of these yes. lives. I noticed uh, that, yeah. 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 Um, precisely. And, and his teachings on nonviolence, too. I noticed that was also a connecting thread in all these stories. Right. So, yeah. Gandhi is what finally connects Thoreau all the way up to Martin Luther King Jr. and Ruby Sales and Jonathan Daniels, who was martyred during the civil rights movement in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but also, Gandhi. Um, Gandhi has had refined his understanding of and acting out of the Gita's principles more than anybody in 
that I know of that I'm aware of in, in, in pretty much in human life. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started with him because then he becomes the the rock or the pillar that the whole rest of the book is um, based on. And at the end, as you notice, we we revisited Gandhi and the great several times. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just it was just amazing to read. I love the fact that you weaved in your own personal stories and the stories of your friends throughout the throughout the book. I think that was. That was great because it gave us some insight into, into your life and yeah. how how you related to these characters and and the lessons that yeah. they that they stood for. You know, and every one of them does have some kind of really personal connection. Like Charles Russell Lowell, it turns out that one of my best friends is his great 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 grand. Um, yeah, nephew, yeah, yeah. Right? And so I don't know. That filled me with. Um, and and his cousin Carol Bundy wrote the brilliant book on on Charles Russell Lowell. So when I read that book, I knew I had to include him in one of my books on on Dharma. Right, right. Um, and Stephen, I wanted to talk to you about um, something that you wrote in the book. You you wrote that certain kinds of changes bring confusion, suffering, and resistance, but it also brings new possibilities, new ways of seeing the world, and new solutions to old problems. So my question is, um, most of us, a lot of us can understand this on an intellectual level, but how can we remember this and find comfort in it when we're in the midst of pain, when we're suffering? It's very difficult. I mean, for the most part, we, we blip at, in and out of that kind of perspective. But I'll just tell you, for me, this is very personal now. For me, um, the second to the last chapter is about Marian Anderson, the great contralto. And yes, <laughs> as the epigraph to that chapter, I use uh, a shloka um, from the Tao Te Ching, which says, the master sees things as they are without trying to change them. She lets things go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. So this is a brilliant uh, verse from the Tao Te Ching, which basically means if you can find the center of your circle, which for some people is God, for me, it's my deep and abiding 40-year-long meditation practice. If you can find that place to sit where you feel grounded and connected with what really matters, with your own intuition your and your own discernment, um, you can maintain some of that perspective through the difficult times. So I have a long, like I said, 40 years of meditation. And it's the one thing that I, I try never to miss in my week. It's, it's both meditation and yoga, but I do about an hour and a half of sitting meditation three times a week with a group or with one of my Dharma buddies, one of my accountability partners in, in meditation. and. No matter how scattered my mind gets, coming back again and again to that safe spot, to my cushion, to my meditation practice, brings me back to the kind of perspective that we need in in order to survive difficult times, to survive what we've all been through in the last three years. Um, And, you know, what meditation uh, brings us to, and I, I write about this in depth in the Marianne Anderson chapter, is that part of the mind 
that we call witness consciousness, the, the deep part of the mind, that usually we live in, in what's called ordinary discursive mind, which is the surface of the mind, mm-hmm. which is restless and crazy. But we're programmed to also connect with this deeper part of the mind that is, if you will, like the depth of the ocean where it's still and clear and settled. And if you if you find a way to connect with that, you can survive and even thrive through the difficult times that, that drive your mind crazy about, I don't have any control over this, I don't know what's going to happen next, all of the stuff that we catastrophize about and fear. So meditation has been mine, you know, to a certain extent, it was Gandhi's as well, although yeah. Gandhi, Gandhi's big practice was chanting. So yeah. Gandhi, yeah, he was a big chanter. He was a big chanter. He chanted the, yeah. the name of Ram, the name of God. Mm-hmm. And of course, when he was shot, that's what happened. He he was shot. He was assassinated. Yeah. And for the next minute that he lived, he chanted the name of Ram. That was deeply in him. And that was his kind of center. Right. I think we need we need to educate people on how to do it. Uh, you know, to, to meditate and to find that centered place because, um, you know, so many people are resorting to to taking, you know, anti-anxiety pills and, uh, you know, uh, you know, artificial means to kind of deal with their with their pain. I think finding our, our own tools and our techniques to to manage to manage our emotions is just I think we, we it's really essential for uh, at this point in time. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Celine. And For me, again, if I look back on the trajectory of my spiritual life, the discovery of meditation in my 20s, when I was 25, uh, was absolutely pivotal. It opened the door to everything that followed Mm. me. And, you know, I, I so encourage people to learn meditation and stick with it. Because contrary to a lot of what you might hear in, in the popular press, it's not easy at the beginning. To meditate yeah it's not it, you have to yeah learn. i tried <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's hard and it's most hard, of yeah. us most of us give up even my friends who are really dedicated to meditation um i found that having a group having what i call a meditation buddy my friend diane mm-hmm. and i meditate together three times a week some structure that allows you to keep coming back again and again to your cushion um and 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 after a while and the studies show that even 10 minutes a day seven minutes a day actually if it's done regularly over time begins to change your brain so that you begin to act more less out of the the limbic system less less out of the so-called neo-mammalian brain and more out of the prefrontal cortex more out of the a part of the brain that does have perspective and compassion um, and and that that fosters the sense of profound well-being. So that's just my little pitch um, to join with your voice and saying, yeah, guys, learn to meditate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so meditation work for you. Are, are there any other ways that you recommend for people who... Might yeah, want, to, you know, mean, want to try different things. Absolutely. There's so many ways to meditate. So we talked about Gandhi and chanting. Yeah. Chanting is a 
great way to focus the mind. Meditation is nothing other than attentional training. Meditation yeah. is simply training the mind to land on an object and come back again. Mindfulness? Um, mindfulness is, um, of course, a, a, a kind of a moderately new word. Mindfulness yeah. expands that attention so that um, one is not only aiming, narrowing, and focusing, which is concentration meditation, but is widening the scope so that rather than a laser of meditation, you have a little bit of a, um, uh, a searchlight that's capable of seeing and being present for sensation, feelings, thoughts, and finding a, a way to live at the center of that and not be blown away by it. Um, so mindfulness is a great doorway into meditation, yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for those suggestions. You say that our dharma is very much connected to, um, you know, altruistic motives and uh, kind of doing good in the world. Uh, you write that personal fulfillment and the common good must arise together or they will not rise at all. So yeah. could you please explain what you mean by that and how it applies to our dharma? You know, this is such an interesting facet of the Bhagavad Gita. When you really examine the Gita, it's a brilliant 2,000-year-old scripture, you discover that Krishna, who is actually an avatar of, of God, um, constantly says, when you find your dharma, you'll find that you work always for the welfare of all beings. And what that points us to in our era is that, that we live in an era of profound narcissism. Narcissism yes. is, is the experience of being completely obsessed with I, me, mine, my brilliant writing, my great career, all of that stuff. And actually what Krishna teaches is that the obsession with I, me, and mine takes you away from your dharma. Because dharma, fully enacted dharma, it doesn't matter what it is. If your dharma is stamp collecting, eventually, if you're doing it full out, it will bring you to a way in which to support the well-being of the whole. Because we're so interconnected. And this is another, this is another myth about the self in our current, um, in our current day, is that we are these little engines of um, you know, consciousness under our own power, but the, the truth of our interconnection, which we've seen, for example, during COVID, how interconnected the whole world is now. And we can't just take care of ourselves here in the United States. We have to be, we have to be proactive in helping to, um, help the entire world become vaccinated or, um, have masks or whatever we need because we're interconnected. It's the truth of human beings. You know, in the, in the contemplative traditions, there are the so-called three marks of existence. One is anicca, which means impermanence, which is the fact that everything changes all the time. The second is anatta, which is usually defined as no self, but it really means no self under its, in, its own independent power. In other words, we are co-creations of our relational field of our world, and, and our dharma inevitably brings us back to that. So the third mark of existence, of course, is, is dukkha or suffering, um, and that's the notion that 
whenever we act based on grasping, again, grasping for I, me, or mine, um, aversion, hatred, and delusion, we create suffering for ourselves and for all beings. Um, likewise, when we act on compassion, loving kindness, generosity, we create well-being for ourselves and for all beings connected. So there aren't that many scriptures that point this out with such ferocity as Krishna does in, in the Bhagavad Gita. And especially since I was dealing with, in this book, with difficult times, in those difficult times, we are forced into an acknowledgement of how interconnected we are. Mm -hmm. Right. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, when when she lost her son, was forced to feel the depth of loss and realize other people feel this too. All those black women across the river in Kentucky, whose children are being ripped away from them, are having the same experience I am. It's a human experience. And so compassion arises. And with compassion arises the what they call in the yoga scriptures the um, the samapati or coalescence or the the acknowledgement that in every way that really counts you and I everybody watching is made of the same stuff we're human beings we're made of the same stuff we recognize that stuff in another so I took the opportunity to bring forward that teaching of Krishna. Yeah. Personal fulfillment can only arise in the context of the well-being of the whole. Yeah. The United I, States can't just solve it, solve the COVID problem ourselves. We it has to be in the context of the whole world. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Stephen. I think the way our society, huh, the way it is, it's not conducive. To creating this culture where people do feel that sense of responsibility and, and compassion. So what do you think we could start doing to, to change that and, you know, make people have that kind of, um, you know, that orientation towards uh, a sense of responsibility towards yeah. other people? You mm -hmm. know, I, I tell the story in the, in the book of Indra's Web which is a great teaching story that goes all the way back to Vedic times, where Indra, the great god of the Vedic dispensation, lived on Mount Miru in India. And it was said that he cast a vast net over the entire universe. And at the warp and woof strand of each uh, vertex was a gem. And it's that gem's job to hold together that part of the, of the net. That's the only job you have is to hold together you're part of the net, mm -hmm. which means you're not responsible for the whole thing. You're responsible for your part. And so when I was forced to ask myself, what can I do? Well, I'm a writer. I can write. That's what I do. Yes. So write about this in a way that will help move people toward the, compa the compassion of a Gandhi, the understanding of interdependence um, of a Martin Luther King. Yeah. And, uh, and and you run a podcast. You can do yes. that through your podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I love that. So you're saying you could find a way to do it through by following your dharma, like the way of Marianne Anderson. I think she uh, it was through her, her singing that she was exactly. able to open people up through, yeah, through using a, her gift. 
No, that's exactly right, Sunlene. And that's yeah. that's just the right character in my book to point to. Yes. Marian Anderson was confronted with this. Of course, she was one of the greatest contraltos the world has ever seen. Yeah, she yeah. Was, I listened yeah. to her and I was like, whoa. I Amazing. listened to her before and I was like, that that voice and, is and, out and of, of the course, world. She's a black woman and she was singing in the 20s and 30s. And um she was renowned in Europe, all the great halls of Europe. She yeah. And then she came back to this country. And because she was black, she was not allowed to sing in any of these places. Can't even Europe. imagine. My goodness. Not allowed to sing in Constitution yeah. Hall in Washington, D.C., the greatest hall in the capital of our land. And in her book, she describes, she says, well, I wasn't made for hand-to-hand combat. I'm not an activist. So what do I do? Well, she decided to use her gift. Just like I'm saying, I write, you run a podcast, all these people watching us do something, use your gift. That's what Marian Anderson did. And so she wasn't allowed to sing in, in Constitution Hall, but Eleanor Roosevelt got seriously pissed about this situation. Yeah. And she resigned from the, the Daughters of the American Revolution, who owned the hall. She and her husband created this amazing event where Marion sang in front of 75,000 people in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And it was one of those crossroads event because here's this majestic black woman standing in front of a row of microphones going around all around the world, singing African-American spirituals, singing the American um singing uh, My Country Tis of Thee, the, the American anthem, and a bunch of fabulous European repertoire. It, it was the kind of event that changed people's minds. And, and later she realized it was through her use of the gift that she was able to do that. So she began to bring her gift to where it was needed in uh, the, the problem of racism in America. She brought it. And she didn't she didn't have to become a fighter. I'm not a fighter myself. I'm I'm not particularly an activist, but I yeah. have I have a responsibility to as an author to speak to what's happening in the times. So that's why I made the choices I did in, in this book. And I feel great about it. I I I've, I love the process of getting to know these characters. Me too. Me too. It was, I, I, I wasn't expecting to learn about so many new people. You know, Sojourner yeah, yeah. Truth was another, she uh, really struck me as being fascinating. I, I had no idea someone like her um, no, existed. No. Most people don't, you know, these are people in the book who, who tend to live on pedestals like Sojourner Truth. Yeah. There's a statue of her in Boston and so forth. But yeah. when you realize what this woman went through and what she offered to the world. Yeah, and her that, audacity. Her audacity. She was just so courageous. She she already lost everything by the time she was 26. Yes. Parents, family, everything. And she had nothing more to lose. And she heard the voice of God, the, the Holy Spirit who said, okay, now you're going to be my prophet and you're going to go from town to town and you're going to talk about your experience of slavery. You're going to talk about what it was like to be enslaved and what it's like to be free. And 
you're going to show your body with all of the with all of the marks of the lash. You're going to show your finger that got cut off in slavery. And so God gave her the name Sojourner Truth because she was to sojourn, which means to travel, and she was to talk about truth. And she was so feisty. Feisty, I know. Yeah, they should do a movie about her life. I don't know why they haven't done that yet. I'm sure they will do before too long. Uh, I believe they have done a a movie of Harriet Tubman, who was her counterpart, another self-emancipated slave woman who became uh, a force of nature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, uh, I I fell in love with these characters, and my goal was to bring them off the pedestal and make them real for people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you did such a great job of that, Stephen. I mean, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for writing this this amazing book, which I'm sure that a lot of people will will connect with and really speak it'll really speak to a lot of people. I'm I'm so sure about that. I, that's that's lovely to hear. Thank you, Celine. Yeah, Stephen, it's been such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to talk with you and good luck with your Dharma. I mean, you're thank obviously you. doing great work in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I just want to quickly let our listeners know that uh, Stephen Cope's new book, Dharma in Difficult Times, is available um, everywhere where books are sold and at his website, stephencope.com. That's great. Thanks right. so much. Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye for now. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.